The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films as deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. On this week's Halloween special episode of Film Jitsu, Jason gets to spend some time with Jason. With me. As he reviews Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, definitely not Friday the 13th, Part 9, because that would be crazy. <laughs> I'm excited to hear what Jay has to say about what might be the worst of a pretty terrible franchise to begin with. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and roll the trailer. many faces. Death wears many different masks. But pure evil wears only one. And this is your final chance to see it. Goes to hell. The final Friday. Jason, it felt like I couldn't let a Halloween season come and go. Our first Halloween season on Film Jitsu together without talking about the Jason. The Jason. I'm mashing up worlds here. I'm bringing together my two favorite Jasons in one episode. <laughs> and the Friday the 13th franchise gives us a lot to choose from because as much as I love these movies, if I'm being honest, these are all pretty fundamentally terrible movies. Yeah. And so it yeah. is saying something to say that this movie is perhaps the worst of the bunch. I think it's good that you qualified that it is perhaps the worst. Perhaps. I don't think I agree that it is the worst. Oh, good. I can't wait to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I think that is most notable about this Friday the 13th movie is how much Jason is not in the movie. And there's a lot to talk about when we get into the production of this film, because it is a notoriously messy, sloppy, how did it even actually make its way to cinema's production? Yeah. And all of that, I think, is on the screen. So I want to hear, <laughs> what was it like for you? Is this the first time you've ever watched this film? No, I saw it in the theaters when it came out. This is one of the very few Friday the 13th movies that I saw in the theater. It was released in 1993. And so I would have been just, I think I was in my senior year of high school or just, no, I just graduated high school when I went to see it. And the only thing I really remembered about it were the few ending scenes in the diner that were all in slow motion and shot with that weird <laughs> blue haze. Uh -huh. And I remember watching it in the theater and going, why slow motion during the climax of the movie when there's nothing to say? It was just a bunch of slow movement. Right. Not anything, no, no tension being built or anything like that. Well, it turns out that it's not terribly surprising that it wasn't impeccably made because it really was directed by two people, one of whom was this guy named Adam Marcus, 
who at the time was the youngest director ever hired by New Line Cinema. And if I'm not wrong, this was his first production. Yeah, that's correct. So this really was just to get you in position for Freddy versus Jason. But what was fascinating about it was just how messy the whole thing was and how this first-time director, Adam Marcus, was really trying something interesting. He was really trying to do something, I felt, that was very different. And he was trying to solve what I think is a fundamental problem with all slasher movies. And that's, how does he keep coming to life? How does he keep coming back to life? (laughs) How does this happen? I think perhaps, though, what we miss when we ask that question is, do fans of slasher movies really, at the end of the day, give a shit? And I think that might be the problem with this is because you're right. The guy was trying to make a slasher movie that explains how Jason keeps coming back, why Jason keeps coming back, Mm. do something different. I think he was thinking fans wanted something other than Jason just slashing teens to bits when really Friday the 13th fans kind of just want to watch Jason slash teenagers to bits. Well, no, I think he was delivering both. But what I think he really wanted to do was instead of a Freddy versus Jason setup, he wanted to bring Evil Dead into it because the Necronomicon is in it. And that fucking dagger comes out of nowhere in the mythology of Jason. That's the dagger from the Evil Dead. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because this is a great story. Right. You were talking about all those rights issues. The movie isn't called The Friday the 13th because of rights issues. Right. And the Evil Dead franchise was not something that New Line had the rights to. And so this guy snuck those elements into (laughs) his movie and then years later would go on to state that he did it on purpose and it was an Easter egg that he was trying to get yeah. horror fans to put together on their own that this is a shared cinematic universe with the evil dead yeah. and that Jason Voorhees is a deadite? Release the Marcus cut. Okay. <laughs> this is the thing I've been waiting for forever. I want vindication for Adam Marcus 40 years later or whatever it is. <laughs> and he's going to need it because if you look at the rest of his filmography, oh, it's he has made nothing Else, it didn't get better for the man after this, unfortunately. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. He definitely is a series of strikeouts for sure. What's really sad about it, though, is if you watch the first 10 minutes, this is the best 10 minutes of any of these movies. It is so well shot, so well composed, so funny, so self referential. And it's enjoyable as all get out and hilarious. This might be the most we have ever agreed about any one thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're so right. You were talking about how memorable the end of this movie is. For me, it's always that beginning scene. I've never (laughs) seen anything quite like it. Maybe 1993, I wasn't quite as uh, an informed film goer as I am now. Maybe I would have seen kind of what the setup was. But I remember the first time I watched the movie and being completely caught off guard. And, you (laughs) know, it blew my mind what they were up to. I thought it was fantastic. I honestly wish that the movie had managed to capture that tone and that idea through Mm -hmm. the rest of it. Because they were off to a really fantastic start, which is amazing when you think about how rushed the script was how messy the filmmaking was the fact that there's this almost bravura short film at the beginning of the movie exactly right yeah is so exciting and then you get what is pretty comfortably garbage (laughs) 
throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, it pretty much falls apart for sure. The beginning really sets you up for a good time. It knows what it's doing. It's very winking, but it's also so capable. And then once you get into that clearing and all of these SWAT team members drop out of the trees and it's it's so over the top and they just fill Jason with bullets and explosives and whatever else. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. I think that there are moments throughout the movie I don't know who's responsible. I don't know if it's Adam Marcus that's responsible or if it's Sean Cunningham or somehow the two of them battling it out. It led to a, an interesting product. I do think that the shape-shifting bit was lifted pretty much from that 1987 movie, The The Hidden, directed mm-hmm. by Jack Shoulder. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Kyle MacLachlan yeah. was in it. It's an interesting movie where there's like a slug-like creature that's an alien that goes from person to person and they, they have different faces, you know, that... I think that there was something very similar happening here in this movie. I'm not sure if they kind of intended to lift that or not. You know, it was, it was an interesting thing to watch, kind of think about. I also love the fact that Richard Gant was the first murderer in it. The coroner that ends up giggling and then eating <laughs> the heart of Jason mowing on this diseased heart. Another really memorable moment. I remember being pretty good and grossed out. As he's yeah. just chomping in this kind of this black. Yeah, it's black is, and it's, charred. It's very yeah. gross. <laughs> it's so gross. I think that the shape-shifting thing could have been interesting. I think Gant also gets the number one kill in the entire thing where there's two people having sex. And this movie definitely liked to linger on the females. Mm-hmm. Like the, the camera was definitely on the ladies quite a bit. And there's this one scene where um, a girl and a guy are making out in a tent. And then the girl gets up and they're, you know, in the midst of flagrante delecto. And then out of nowhere, Jason comes in with the machete and cuts her down the middle of her head. And she kind of like splits (laughs) open at climax. It's so so gross. And I could see that being more Cunningham. Uh That was one of the more memorable kills, I think, that I had seen in the the entirety of the franchise. I agree. Then there were just weird things that happened. This is whole part where... There's a a cop in town who ends up getting caught. For some reason, he was being shaved at one point. What is this all about? Why is this cop being shaved? And why is he tied up in like bondage gear and stuff? Very, very strange sort of interludes. There are so many plots that pop up and are never referenced and drop off because so much of the film was cobbled together in the editing room that there were subplots that were never on the page that were created in the edit There were subplots that were on the page that were referenced and then dropped out in the edit. Creighton Duke. Everything with Creighton Duke. I mean, Stephen Williams. You got the captain from 21 Jump Street. Mm. And he doesn't really play any real part in the thing. He kind of bubbles up exposition and then he's gone. It's a waste. A lot of the movie is a waste. And I think the biggest waste of all, the iconography of Jason's hockey mask. Yeah. To take what is essentially the symbol of your movie, Jason, big beefy Jason in the hockey mask and take it out completely so that we get this every man. Yeah. The spirit of Jason is hopping from person to person. 
It's like taking the glove away from Freddy. Yeah. I don't know if it's bold or if it's stupid or if it's like Spinal Tap and sometimes there's a fine line between clever and stupid. (laughs) I think when I was watching it, what I noticed was that they kept trying to pull Jason back in through mirrors or something like that so that you kept that in mind. It was almost like they kind of figured it out. I think once Jason Spirit jumped into Aaron Gray, we all kind of had to do a collective eye roll <laughs> and sort of wonder what the hell was going on. I mean, I've loved Aaron Gray forever, but I never wanted her to be my slasher in a in a Friday the 13th movie. It's a creepy movie in many respects. It plays out like Peyton Place at times with all these weird subplots, like you said. Sure. It's part and parcel of really scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to plot. Mm-hmm. They really didn't know what to do with Jason because he didn't have many relatives left. And so now it's like his half sister's daughter's daughter or something like <laughs> exactly. I even, How it could it even so, matter? It didn't. It didn't. Right. And like and then the evil dead dagger coming in was neat to see. At one point, I think it was the Stephen Williams character, Creighton Duke, is talking about how they have to get rid of Jason, like what the rationale is for getting rid of him and what his goal is, what Jason's goal is. Jason's goal is to kill his remaining bloodline because his remaining bloodline is the only thing that can truly kill him. When there's no hint of that in the previous eight movies, there's never any talk about bloodline. Jason's got his mommy issues, but there are no other relatives. And you're right. They tried to add in all of this mythology (laughs) in exposition that isn't present anywhere else in the franchise. The character doesn't need that. It's not what audiences want. And you're right. Maybe part of it is to try to set up this showdown between Jason and Freddy and to maybe give some substance to a character that is really very surface level. But that's what fans like about Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I come from a very different background because I always like supernatural horror more. Yep. I'm not a huge slasher fan. This is why this is a good choice for me right. and a bad choice for me for film jitsu because you gave me a slasher movie, but you played it in my wheelhouse. So uh-huh. you didn't do yourself any favors with making me suffer. It's probably one of the Friday the 13th movies I would like the most. Although I remember part six which is so fondly remembered by yes. so many people. Yep. And I found that profoundly stupid. It's the most Friday the 13th out of all of them. It's the most campy. <laughs> it's the most, yeah. it's the biggest, it's kind of the popcorniest of all yeah, of the it Friday is. the it 13th. It really is. Yeah. I gave you this one honestly because I think there's so much more to talk about. Even though yeah. none of it worked, I often say that I appreciate somebody taking a big swing rather than just trying to get on base. And so I could have given you Friday the 13th 4 or 5, but I don't think there's anything especially memorable about any of those movies. I agree. And I do have fun with this franchise. You know this. I like dressing up as this character. I, I like having fun with it. But it doesn't inspire great conversation. And so I thought if we're gonna talk about a bad movie and we're going to talk about one in this franchise let's at least have something to talk about and there's a lot here in this one whether you went for it or you didn't go for it whether you can recognize it for the sloppy disaster that it is or even if it's just about getting to that final shot (laughs) then 
okay, at least we're having a conversation. And I think to close out the conversation, I think I need to hear from you a little bit about that final shot yeah, of the movie yeah. and, and what that yeah. meant for the trajectory of both of those franchises. When I saw it in the movie theater the first time, I had kind of suffered through the prior 10 or 15 minutes where Jason was pulled into a shaft of light or whatever that was actually hell. And, you know, I, I was I was still kind of reeling from the fact that I was a fan of the TV show. And so okay. John D. LeMay, who for some reason is in this movie as Stephen Freeman, he's sort of the hero character, but he's wearing this goofy 1950s college jacket. Right. He just looks ridiculous. He acts ridiculous. He's a weak hero. Stephen Williams breaks his fingers for some reason, like trying to tell him exposition while they're in jail together. I really liked him as Ryan Dalian in the Friday the 13th series. So I just kind of suffered through the movie. I kept trying to think, like, why the fuck would they take this guy from the show uh-huh. and put him as the lead in this movie. And then all of a sudden there was, there it was on the ground, the mask on the ground. And I went, Oh, for fuck's sake. And then, yep. <laughs> and comedic Freddie's gloved hand comes popping out of the dirt, pulls the thing in. And I had zero excitement. I had zero interest. And later on, interestingly, I actually really liked Freddy versus Jason. I had a good time with that movie. What we so. got was a decade between that shot yeah, and yeah. when Freddy versus Jason hit theaters. Yeah, it took a long time. And there was 10 years of writing, rewriting, scripts that right. went nowhere, projects that started and fell apart, fan fiction, all of this stuff. And it really was starting to look like maybe it would never happen. And then yeah. we get Freddy versus Jason, which... I agree with you. If you don't know how to have fun watching Freddy versus Jason, I get nothing for you. It's just a dumb good time. It's so goofy. But the thing that I really did like about it from a story perspective was the fact that they made Jason the protagonist in that mm-hmm. one in, so, in many respects. Yep. I mean, here you had a child that was murdered and a child murderer. Right. And I just thought, well, there you go. You broke this down to the real basic root of it and found the real Freddy versus Jason piece. And by making Jason sort of weirdly sympathetic in that narrative. Yeah, I think so. This movie is inconsequential in the long game. It didn't matter. Any of what happened didn't matter. I'm sad that we didn't get an Evil Dead Friday the 13th Freddy Krueger movie. I think that could have been a lot of fun. It is what it is. Uh, This movie had some great moments throughout it. I enjoyed quite a bit of it more than I probably should have. (laughs) And as we sit back and try and celebrate Halloween season and October and have fun in this month, what Mm -hmm. do you think? Is it the kind of thing you got some friends together, you're having a little Halloween get together, a couple things. Is this the flick to put on? This is a flick to put on. Between the beginning of the movie, the crazy kill scene with the girl (laughs) when she's climaxing, the various jumps from body to body and the weird shit that goes on there, the Evil Dead tie-ins, and if you're a fan of slow motion, I guess, <laughs> Stephen Williams. You know, I'd watch that guy for an hour eat cornflakes. <laughs> he was surprisingly fun to watch. And I, yeah. my understanding is that Tony Todd auditioned for that role. So to win a role over Tony Todd, yeah, you must yeah. really have been going for something. I'm glad that you enjoyed this. It's Halloween. I wanted you to have fun. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure you did. There's a time to be cruel (laughs) to each other. 
I don't know that Halloween is it. And so I'm glad that throughout this whole Halloween season, we've talked about some pretty out there films. We've had a little bit of fun together. We haven't been quite as antagonistic as we always are. We'll get back to that for sure. (laughs) For sure. For sure. So, Mike, by giving me a Friday the 13th movie, the obvious thing to do then was to talk about our bottom five franchises. And you were very specific. You wanted to talk horror franchises. So we're going to go ahead and talk about our bottom five horror franchises right now because I didn't spend enough time in a shitty (laughs) franchise. So so now I had to think about five that were somehow worse than Friday the 13th. And my (laughs) God, what a great bottom five because it's alarming just how many shitty franchises there are. In fact, you could make an argument and put almost all of them on this list with the exception of maybe the Alien series and the Predator series, which are both like Mm sci-fi action adjacent. But almost every horror franchise sucks in the sequel so hard that you could put them on this list. And I'd be like, yeah, fair enough. So with that said, I really want to know what your approach was here and what your number five is. You nailed it on that setup because (laughs) we talked very specifically what makes a franchise. And I think we agreed that it would be more than three films. There's a trilogy. Anything after that is a franchise. And I do think there are some horror trilogies that stand on their own and are, Mm. are pretty good as three films. And you're right. Once you get outside of that, boy, does it get ugly fast. My number five is back at number five because I genuinely love this franchise. It pains me to include it at all because I have such fondness for these films. It's tied to some of my earliest horror memories. I have a great memory of going to the store and convincing my grandma to buy me my VHS copy of John Carpenter's Halloween. But I have to be honest with the listeners and admit that the Halloween franchise is a tangled web of what the hell is happening. Convoluted timelines, reboots, partial reboots, retcons, titles that confuse the hell out of me. It's a mess. The whole franchise is a mess. This franchise has three fucking movies titled Halloween. It has two movies titled (laughs) Halloween 2. It has a third movie, which is totally awesome, that has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but everything to do with druids. Unless you're talking about the new trilogy, which has a third movie, in which Michael is the killer, but not the main killer, that's some dude named Corey. Of course, chronologically, the franchise goes parts one through six, excluding the aforementioned part three season of The Witch. Then, of course, there's the retcon Laurie Strode timeline that gives us Halloween H2O, in which we remove a bunch of stuff from parts four and five. Are you with me? (laughs) But Laurie is still Michael's sister, and legendary rapper Buster Rhymes sticks his nose into the story for reasons that I still can't explain. Then, are you with me? (laughs) There was Halloween Resurrection, but it wasn't really a resurrection because they kind of actually killed off everything from all the previous movies, which, of course, led to Rob Zombie's movies, which was sort of a remake where this time Michael was the product of big surprise here from Rob Zombie, some psycho Billy trailer trash upbringing that caused him to be evil. And it's always covered in dirt and grime that features Danielle Harris, but not the character she played in parts four and five of the original timeline. Because as I've said, those movies were wiped off the map by H2O. Are you with me still? And while we didn't get a third movie in the Rob Zombie franchise, We did get a third attempt at the Laurie Strode timeline when David Gordon Green made another fucking movie titled Halloween, 
in 2018 in which he cleverly retconned the entire continuity back to the very first movie titled Halloween. But this time, Laurie is not related to Michael Myers, but is a graduate of the Sarah Connor school of kicking the ass of the bad guy. And they made two more sequels to that story in which Michael Myers ended up in a meat grinder. So I'm sure he's dead and we'll never have another Halloween movie ever again because that would be crazy. Well done. I think you covered it well. <laughs> it's it's exhausting. It's it is exhausting. exhausting. Being a little out of, out of pocket here, that mm, is yeah. actually the story of this franchise. You are right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think what I tried to do with my bottom five is a different thing where I hated the first movie, then couldn't understand why they kept making movies after the first movie. Okay. I couldn't see something as beloved as Halloween and even Halloween 2 and even Halloween 3. And then as loved as some of these sequels were. Uh-huh. You know, I was kind of like, well, you know, quality wise, I feel like they're still good. But yes, yeah, you're right. that's it's that's why mess. I had to put it back at number five for sure. kind of everything you said. And I did a little bit of a balancing act where, yeah, sometimes the first couple of movies in a franchise is so good that it outweighs some of the Correct. mess of the sequels. That's right. Texas yep. Chainsaw Massacre is a great example. That franchise isn't on my list. Partly that's because some of those movies are so good that it outweighs what might come later. Jaws is another great example. Those Jaws sequels are a disaster. That's a really good example. That's kind of how I thought about it. But I would love to hear what you have for your number five. I had to go really, really straightforward with my number five. And that's Leprechaun. <laughs> From 1993 to the present, they are making these Leprechaun movies. I think the last one was maybe in like 2018 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's still talk that there there could be another one. I guess Warwick Davis decided to stop making horror movies because he had children. And he didn't think it was the right time for him to do it. So he, he took a break. I've only seen the first two of these. And they were so dumb that I'm truly floored. It's gone on for as long as it has. <laughs> What's not to like, right? For me, it's the lack of any Irish accent. It's the makeup that looks more like a goddamn gremlin than anything else. It's the fact that he's constantly joking, but he's never, ever fucking funny. Uh -huh. Like, ever at all. The only things I like about the franchise are from the first movie, and that's Jennifer Aniston shorts. Uh-huh. And the line where the hero kid says at the end before he kills the leprechaun, fuck you, Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's great that Warwick Davis had this role that he could go back to over and over again, because clearly he wasn't making enough money with Star Wars and Harry Potter under his belt, <laughs> right? Plus Willow, I mean, we could- Thank you. Well done. Uh, yeah, I got to throw out the bone for you with Willow. These movies, they center around a murderous leprechaun, and it's named Lubden Batowski. <laughs> Is that an Irish name? I did not know that. Is that real? <laughs> His name is Lubden Potowski. Like, why? <laughs> that can't be real. It was real. It's his name. Is Lubden Potowski. The first writer wanted to call it something like Seamus or whatever. I hope that our audience will just give me a second here as I change your name in my phone <laughs> from Jason Santo to Lubden Potowski. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks for indulging Perfect. me. <laughs> the only part that I remember from that first movie is when he's jumping on a victim with a pogo stick he says this old man he plays <laughs> right. one he goes pogo on your lung or something yes that is i haven't seen that movie in 15 years i remember and there wouldn't that be any reason ever to see it again uh -huh. nor would you want to see anything else with that character mm -hmm. you don't want to see him in the hood you don't want to see him in space you don't want to see him up grandma's Yahoo. You know, mm -hmm. like, you don't want, you just like any of this stuff that they do with these movies. Do you know that they wanted to do a Leprechaun versus 
Candyman movie. Oh my God. Thank God for Tony Todd. He stopped that shit cold by saying <laughs> that he has too much respect for his character to do something so demeaning. That's a great pick. It feels like if this show goes on long enough, at some point, somebody's going to have to watch one of these leprechauns. And they're going to have to write to us, Mike, at mike at filmjitsu.net or jay at filmjitsu.net. And tell us what they think of Leprechaun and how we inspired them to see it. I like that deflection because I definitely meant that one of us is going to have to review this movie. I'm glad that <laughs> you, you we're, we're no, happy to it's gonna be push somebody that random. off onto our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. It's not going to be one of us. My next franchise is back at number four, not because it's especially better than the next three, but because it's kind of a cheat. <laughs> you know, I like a good cheat. <laughs> I know we said that a franchise needs to be more than a trilogy. Yeah. And the From Dust Till Dawn franchise is, if you count the television series, which I'm doing because this is film jitsu and I get to make my own damn rules. Otherwise, what's the point of having a podcast? So we're going to go with that. Oh. We've talked about From Dust Till Dawn before. I think I like that flick a little bit more than you do. But after the original Robert Rodriguez film in 96, three years later, we get the direct-to-video sequel From Dusk Till Dawn to Texas, Texas Blood, Blood Money. Money. Which, can I say, Texas Blood Money should be the subtitle for every sequel ever. Every movie. Everyone. Yes. Just take a second. Try it. Ready? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind 2. Texas Blood Money. Fried Green Tomatoes 2. Texas Blood Money. All Dogs Go to Heaven 2. Texas Blood Money. It works for everything. <laughs> <laughs> then someone got the bright idea to have a direct-to-video prequel. The following year, titled From Dust Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. Yet another pretty yeah. good subtitle. Love Actually 3, The Hangman's Daughter. <laughs> 80 for Brady 3, The Hangman's Daughter, which <laughs> I suppose you'd have to call 83 for Brady. It's, it's not as good as Texas Just... Blood Money. Anyway, these things are unwatchable. Yeah. I made it through Texas Blood Money. I pressed play and then almost immediately stopped on The Hangman's Daughter. These movies are dreadful. I genuinely suggest... That you never, ever watch them. Mm. Then, all the way in 2014, Robert Rodriguez launched the series, the From Dust Till Dawn series, which aired for three seasons and then fizzled out and didn't go anywhere. Wow. I watched a few episodes. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't for me. Part of what makes the original film cool is that it didn't feel the need to give us a backstory of the Gecko Brothers or what was going on with those vampires and that mythology. It followed this classic piece of screenwriting wisdom which is to enter late and leave early, Yes, right? That's That was what Exactly worked. right. The only thing that matters is what's in the moment. That's exactly right. And it served mm -hmm. that original film so well. And so as much as I like that first film, the ensuing direct-to-video and fine but necessary TV series kind of spoiled the batch for me. Sure. I'd much rather spend my time watching Mr. Holland's Opus 2, Texas Blood Money. So <laughs> that's it for me. It's, <laughs> that's it's fair. That. Yeah. 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 So my number four is the Underworld series mm. that has lasted from 2003 to 2017. This bullshit went five <laughs> films deep. I am already so on board with this. That was the best <laughs> this <laughs> bullshit you've ever seen. Oh, I can't I wait just, for the rest. This is yeah, so good. It's like, all I can say is that it's like the Resident Evil movies, 
but shot with like a blue filter. It's the bluest movie. It's so blue. It's so dark. Everything's in shadow. The action, you can't tell what's going on. It's all shot in Confuse-A-Vision. I like Kate Beckinsale. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to like the first movie of the series, but it's painfully boring and it's terribly paced. The movies seem far more interested in this like crazy mythology that pits vampires against werewolves in the most convoluted war this side of Naboo in the Trade Federation. (laughs) So, I, you know, I hated the first two movies of the series. I don't know that I actually saw all of either one of them. I think they kind of went by in a blur. I think I tried to watch them with my oldest son, and I fell asleep during both of them. Okay, I have the distinction of having fallen asleep (laughs) in front of so many of these movies. How many are there? How many are there in this franchise? Five. 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 There are five. No, and there's a there's a there's an animated one too. If I had to guess, I I would have told you eight. I would have told you there was like eight or nine. It seems like one comes out every fifteen minutes. I went to the theater to see the first one with former co-host of this show, John. I fell asleep in the theater. I was a college kid who paid money to go to a movie theater to see a vampire yep, there movie. There you go. And I fell yep. asleep at the movie. Oh man, you are so right about this. Maybe I just like zombies better. I do have a soft spot in my heart for Mila Jovovich's Resident Evil flicks. And I'm really hoping that you didn't put them on your bottom five. I didn't. I did not because those movies, they get shamelessly worse, shamelessly more stupid. They do. And shamelessly more fun as they go along. (laughs) Yes, exactly. They really do. They're so dumb and I enjoy them. This is the complete opposite. Underworld, number four. My number three... It's Sharknado. Oh, yeah. Listen. No, I get it. You had a funny idea. I feel like I say this a lot. Sometimes the idea is enough and you can just leave it at that. You don't actually have to make the movies. There are five of these things. Mm. And I'll give you that coming up with subtitles seems like a fun writing exercise. There's Sharknado 2, the second one. Sharknado 3, Oh Hell No. Mm. Sharknado 4, The Fourth Awakens. And Sharknado 5, Global Swarming. Those are all pretty good stuff. No Texas blood money. I can't help but think how much money has been spent on what is essentially a punchline. Like, how many soup kitchens could have been built with the Texas blood money that they spent (laughs) making Sharknado movies? Yeah. If the answer is at least one soup kitchen, then I'm comfortable putting this franchise on a bottom five list. Here it is in the bronze medal spot. I laughed once at the line Sharknado, and then I I get it already. I had a good time. I think I saw the second movie in the theater, and I had a really good time because I went with friends, and it was a fun, dumb, you know, I think at some point there was Ian Ziering from like Beverly Hills 90210, I think he was in it. Yeah, I think And he had a chainsaw, and he was chainsawing the sharks, like, as they were flying through the Uh air, and I just thought, yeah. Okay, this is good for for what it is. But when they kept coming out with more and more, it did, it did feel very much like they were beating a dead shark. Well, in my bronze spot, for now on, it's always going to be the bronze spot. Okay, okay. <laughs> if you can believe this, this was the longest running series until another one very recently leapt away with it. It's the Witchcraft series. Not Have mm. you even seen one of these fucking movies? For some reason, they were always on the shelves in the video stores. Yeah. You would always see witchcraft or some sort of like witch. I'm sure I've seen one of them. Not to be confused with witch board. Witch board. Uh Right. Exactly. Which, 
you know, this movie kind of looks like a White Snake video. The first one looks like <laughs> a White Snake video, but there's no Tawny Katane. Okay. Because she was in Witchboard, right? right. Yes. This is Witchcraft. Gotcha. And usually the key to a franchise is to make money. Somehow this, the once longest running horror franchise with 18 mostly shot on video entries doesn't appear to have made enough money to pay its actors for the last 30 years. Oh, wow. As the production values go down in the chart and you see a downward trend, so goes the skeevy nudity and simulated sex <laughs> goes <Okay>. up. <laughs> like it's this weird inverse sort of charting that happens. It turns into somewhere around movie six, softcore pornography uh -huh. like it just it just gives way completely to it <laughs> doesn't even pretend no not even a little bit but what's so funny about this this is 18 movies deep from 1988 to 2018 30 years i think it is wow is my math right <laughs> it's 30 years right yeah you've got a character at the very beginning in the first movie who's a baby his name is will spanner okay. he becomes the protagonist for the entire series, almost, except for like, I think it was movie number eight where they pulled like a Halloween three and just went with this totally different story sure. and then they yeah. came back to him or whatever. Essentially, each movie presents characters with some sort of seductive force. Mm -hmm. The devil wants them to make out with the, the lady <laughs> next door or wants to make out with the seductive nightclub guy or the radio DJ. Why is the devil such a perv? He's... That's it's not even pervy. evil. It's just pervy. It's just super pervy. And you follow this one character, this Will Spanner guy. He's a baby at first. The second movie is a horny teenager. The third movie he's like in his 20s. He's got a career where he works as like a private detective and a lawyer. What? Who does that? All right. But and, and these forces of evil are always trying to get at him or they're trying to get at his girlfriend. And then at some point, like a Mulder and Scully type characters come into the whole fray and and all the while people are bumping uglies but not really because you can clearly see that people are still wearing their underwear in the private <laughs> search <laughs> in separate rooms you know i, so I like that you stuck with this franchise though that's the nice thing about it is you you're like i'm not watching any more of these leprechaun movies but i'm gonna watch all of these pervy witchcraft no movies. i've only watched like four of them and I, mm. i've kind of picked throughout the series i think i saw <laughs> one and two a friend of mine directed number 13 or something like that i think somewhere in the middle i saw like a seven or an eight or i don't even know which one i i don't even know is it possible that you directed one of these movies and just Probably. didn't remember like yes accidentally like i was drunk on a weekend because that's how long it takes them to shoot them <laughs> they shot the last three of them so number 16 17 and 18 in nine fucking days back to back whoa <laughs> that's like clearly talking quality here and what's funny is they keep ripping off other movies Really, what I'm going to tell you to do is instead of watching any of the witchcraft movies, go in order. Rosemary's Baby, The Graduate, Indecent Proposal, Blue Velvet, The X-Files, Pass Number Six. You could literally watch anything else. Anything. <laughs> anything. For Christ's sakes, anything. Just anything. <laughs> Doesn't matter what it is. That's a pretty good little film festival you just put together there, though. That's yeah, I like that fun. list. I'll take it. For my number two, I talked about this a little bit before. I struggle with... The fact that some of the original movies in a franchise are so good. I talked about Jaws mm. and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but my number two doesn't have that problem because the original film, if I'm being <laughs> honest, is pretty subpar. Jason, do you know how many entries there have been in the Children of the Corn franchise? 
Just take a guess. Nine. There are 11 movies 11. in this mess. Yeah. Wow. Most of them are direct-to-video sequels. There was a made-for-TV movie and then the new adaptation that came out earlier this year wow. that I don't think anyone watched. Who could Mm-mm. give a shit? No one. Even then, the original movie is pretty ho-hum, if I'm being honest. And I'm a guy mm. who drove eight hours by myself to attend a screening of the original Children of the Corn in the middle of a cornfield. That's a thing that I actually did. I met John Franklin, who plays Isaac. I met Courtney Gaines, who played Malachi. I got him to autograph my Children of the Corn DVD. The director, Fritz Kirsch, showed me the notes that he scribbled on his original shooting script. I had a great time. Those guys were, they were so cool and friendly to everybody who came out to see them. They spend a lot of time with the fans. It was a great weekend, but... It's not a great movie. Fair enough. Child actors abound, which means child acting abounds. Even Linda (laughs) Hamilton herself couldn't save the thing. And then there are some super shitty lightning animation effects that make the climax of the film laughable. Mm. It's just not very good. And it definitely didn't need 10 follow-up films. So because the original was pretty lousy and because it birthed a pile of useless sequels for reasons i'll never understand i'm going with the children of the corn for my number two yeah that's a perfect pick some people might criticize us for punching down a little bit on things like witchcraft even these children of the corn movies were made for like a buck 57 you know over like the span of Mm -hmm. a couple days with a bunch of non-actors you know but the truth of the matter is they're garbage and they were made to cash in Mm -hmm. so i don't feel bad punching down at them because they're really there to to cash in on a on a name And who cares? And let's be honest. There are people out there that I'm sure like those films. I want those people to like those films. I hope people enjoy their fandom wherever they find it. And if there is somebody who is just a diehard Children of the Corn stan, then Mm. I want them to love Children of the Corn Part 7 Texas Blood Money. I want that for them. So, (laughs) you know, you're right. We're punching down a little bit, but Mm. I think we can do that in in a way that says, hey. We're putting together a list, but like what you like. Well, I like what I like, and I love, as you know, Amityville. Yes. Huge Amityville fan. Wanted to buy the house at one point. <laughs> Wanted to move in there. This is personal for me. From 1979 to 1983, we had three movies. Okay. And then there's just chaos after that. Just absolute chaos. Just chaos. This is the first horror movie I ever saw. It was the original Amityville horror movie starring Margot Kidder and James Brolin. As George and Kathy Lutz, the real-life couple who moved into a Long Island home where a horrific murder of a family had occurred the year prior. And the true story is that the Lutzes were in way over their head financially with the purchase of a house. And so they came up with a story about the haunting to profit off that dire situation. And it kind of worked. Although the book's publisher and later the movie producers were really the ones who cleaned up. Mm -hmm. What's wild is that after the original trilogy, part three, which I reviewed on an episode of this show. You sure did, like a champ. (laughs) There were some dodgy made-for-TV sequels, and then things pretty much went dormant until the Ryan Reynolds reboot in 2005. And then all of a sudden, ultra-low-budget producers caught wind that while the phrase the Amityville horror was trademarked, the word Amityville could be used apparently in conjunction with almost anything to make Just a quick Just carte buck. blanche, right? So the already excessive nine original Amityville titles were joined since 2006 by another 32 fucking wow. titles. 
Wow. And because I'm an idiot, yes, I've seen a few of these, which are <laughs> the kind of dreck most video stores wouldn't have ordered even in the halcyon days of affordable VCRs. You uh-huh. know, crap like Amityville in Space, Amityville Karen. You can find them on what? Tubi if you're interested. But I personally recommend slamming your hand in a windowsill or choking on some flies instead of watching <laughs> a single frame of something called Amityville Gas Chamber. Oh, my Fuck God. Fuck you, people. Fuck you, people. <laughs> a friend of mine wrote two of these Amityville movies. Another which friend one, of mine. Too. Which one did you write? Which one of these is your accidental you made an Amityville I have movie? one. You I do. have one. I do. I have one I want to make. Oh, oh, all right. I'm there for it. Okay, let's. We're gonna get a GoFundMe going. We're gonna get the Film Jitsu listeners Amityville, in. Amityville, Texas blood money. Every, you son of a bitch! I fell for it. I'm so relieved that you did this. I thought a lot about this franchise. This is gonna come up. It belongs to Jason. I don't want to step on those toes. It would have been a real shame if our bottom fives had come and gone without talking about all this stuff. I'm so glad that you brought it up. For me, number one, integrity matters. Even in a horror franchise, when you start shoehorning scripts that were never a part of your franchise into your franchise after the fact, you get my number one, and that's the Hellraiser franchise. I almost did it too. Again, Jay, take a guess at how many movies there are in this series. I think because I was doing research, it's 11, right? Once again, it's 11, which along with Children of the Corn seems to be the lucky number for shitty franchises. And here's the thing. Six of these movies weren't even originally supposed to be Hellraiser movies. That's more than half. Jesus. The slime balls at Dimension Films who own the rights started taking unproduced scripts they had laying around and just smashed some Cenobites in there and somehow called it a Hellraiser sequel. Mm. Part seven was from a script about a Romanian cult. So they turned it into a Hellraiser Romanian cult. Part eight Mm. was about video games and they just made it about a Hellraiser video game. It's just the laziest cash grabby Uh. bullshit. To make matters worse, the pigs, that's right, the pigs that owned Miramax, you know who I'm talking about, made parts nine and ten strictly to maintain the rights to the franchise so that Clive Barker wouldn't get them back. Mm. They didn't even give a shit about the movies. They were literally made just as cheap legal tactics. That's amazing. Again, zero integrity from a student run in part by a real piece of human filth whose name rhymes with Barbie Blinstein, (laughs) a studio that used this franchise as an intellectual property ATM, a legal maneuver to screw over the original creator of the material and churned out some of the most unwatchable nonsense along the way. That's enough to land Hellraiser at number one on my list. Thankfully, Spyglass Media now owns the rights to the franchise. Yeah. And in 2022, they rebooted things with a new film entitled... Hellraiser. Pretty good, honestly. Yeah. Personally, I'd have gone with Hellraiser, Texas Blood Money, but again, that's not why I'm in charge of things, so... Well, finally, on my number one, I'm going to go with Evil Bong. Oh, That's right. From 2006 to 2022... (sighs) I, I thought we might get out of this Halloween season without talking about it, but you're right. It's How impossible. can you have a bottom five list and not have these evil bong movies on there? They, they're movies about a bong possessed by a spirit called E.B. 
that when you take enough hits from it, it transports you to the bong world <laughs> where strippers seduce you and bite you with their bras made of skulls. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> and then Tommy Chong shows up and he tries to destroy the bong. And there's a weird cameo from Tim Thomerson who's reprising his role from the Trancer movies from the 80s. Thank goodness for that. Yeah, thank goodness for that. You know, because that was directed by Charles, Charles Band. Band. Again, yeah. It's of course it's Charles Band, right? Another bottom five, another appearance from Charlie Band. He's the only guy in cinema that could somehow spin eight sequels out of one of the dumbest concepts ever. Not only are you so abundantly correct about this, but you've just reminded me of something that we used to do on the original version of Film Jitsu that I think mm. in this moment, on air production meeting, we're going to bring it back. <laughs> okay. We used to do what we called the Film Jitsu Hall of Lame. Oh. Those movies that were so bad that came up so often, we oh. inducted them into our Hall of Lame. And I think that perhaps it's time that we take Charles Band and put him in the Film Jitsu Hall of Lame. Hall of Lame. What do you say? Fine by me. I don't think I get, I should talk about him anymore. <laughs> I don't think it would be healthy for me to do it. You know, if I have to talk about the ginger dead man. You're exactly you know? <laughs> right. So let's go ahead. We're going to induct Charles Band from now on into the Film Jitsu Hall of Lame, never to be spoken of again if we can help it. <laughs> And I think we need a whole separate section on the website. Let's go ahead and put up our Hall of Lame. Our listeners can go to filmjitsu.net and check it out. I'm sure we're going to start putting others in there as we go. If we're being honest, probably that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie needs to be in there too. Yes. And and there it is. So look at that. You have just made your official first entry into the Film Jitsu Hall of Lame. This is a big moment. And I just unlocked a core memory for you. I saw your brain open (laughs) up. Yeah, that's right. I (laughs) I think there was light coming out of your skull. Yeah, man. Well done. Well, that was a really fun bottom five list. I'm glad that we're digging in on this fun Halloween. You know how much I love this time of year and how much I love getting silly with Halloween. We'll do other horror movies throughout the upcoming year, I'm sure. Probably not for the next handful of episodes. I just have so much fun talking about this stuff with you because these are the flicks that you and I bonded over in the first place. Our friendship Mm -hmm. started with this kind of nonsense. And so talking about this with you is just the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast with you again, because this is what I love about being friends with you is talking about this stuff. Yeah. I like you too, Mike. (laughs) You son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I grew up, I grew up reading Fangoria. I mean, (laughs) I grew up watching this shit. I loved evil dead. When I was growing up, I loved I like supernatural horror. You like slasher movies. Together we're chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> what do you got for us this week from Stat Picks? Actually, it's kind of appropriate because this has come up a couple of times over the course of this episode in a couple of different ways. We've mentioned Tony Todd a couple of times. You talked about mm. Candyman versus Leprechaun. Leprechaun. Yeah. It just so happens that my staff pick this week is Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose and starring Tony Todd. This movie is a showstopper. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can say enough how great this is as a film. Mm -hmm. Horror aside, it is very scary. It is very tense. It has a lot on its mind in terms of politics. It came out at a very 
specific time in our history when we were having a lot of conversations about race relations in this country. And Tony Todd plays this iconic character. For me, there's Freddy, there's Jason, there's Michael, and there's Candyman. Even as we talk about it, I'm kind of counting on my hand to make sure I don't say his name five times because (laughs) I am that certain that he might just appear behind me and put his hook in my guts. Virginia Madsen is Mm -hmm. unbelievably good. When you talk about a horror movie, what gets lost often is the drama of the final girl. And we get these final girls that are bouncy or giggly, or sometimes they're the brave one. There are a lot of good final girls in horror for sure, but I don't think there are any better for me than the tragic final girl that Virginia Mm -hmm. Madsen plays in Candyman as this woman who is investigating this mythology of a urban legend of the Candyman who appears in the Cabrini Green high rises and is killing people. And she succumbs is sort of seduced by this character over the course of the movie is slowly going insane. People start thinking that she's responsible for these Candyman murders. The end of this movie is just gripping twice Mm -hmm. over because we get the end of the movie and then we get this really great coda to finish it off. Yeah. There's just not a lot of times when a horror movie that you could comfortably call a slasher is also just a really great dramatic film with really good performances for some really first class actors. This is a real ass movie. I love the Candyman franchise. I often think when people tell me I don't like horror movies, what they mean a lot of the times is I don't like slashers. And when you Mm -hmm. talk to them about the things that they like and talk, they're like, oh yeah, I like that. Well, I do like that. And it turns out they do like horror movies. They just don't like Friday the 13th movies from the eighties. This is one of those movies that if I'm trying to encourage somebody to maybe check out something a little more like a slasher, this is my go-to because I think it's just such a solid piece of cinema. Mm -hmm. As many times as I've seen it, it just gives me the creeps every single time. Tony Todd's performance as Candyman is genuinely frightening no matter how many times I see it. So if you haven't seen this movie, I really, I can't say it enough. Please check out Candyman. The music is fantastic. The direction by Bernard Rose is really something else. Just as a piece of filmmaking, start to finish production, music, performances, This is really, I think I'm talking myself into putting this as like Hmm. a top kind of five horror movies for me. I really like it that much. Yeah, it's that good. It's an original story by um, Clyde Barker too. Mm -hmm. So that's another, I mean, talk about pedigree. I think that the thing that really sticks out most about it was some of the cinematography. You know, obviously the performances and everything, but the cinematography, that opening shot, that overhead opening shot, that's now everybody does these overhead opening shots with with the drones and everything. But this was back in what the, is it the late eighties, early nineties, right? Right. Yeah. And came out over the city of Chicago. This isn't a drone in a field. No, 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 no. (laughs) It has a lot to say. I love the movie and I think it's great that you're uh, recommending it to folks. I, I can't imagine that there are too many out there that haven't seen it, but if they haven't, they should. This season, my final pick for recommendations is a documentary actually. Oh, wow. And it's called Pennywise, the story of it. I gotta say, One of my biggest disappointments in life (laughs) has been that I didn't get to direct my version of it. Wow. I had 
visualized and had come up with quite a number of shots, quite a number of ideas. In fact, I pretty much wrote a screenplay that was sort of a riff on it. And I love the source material a great deal. So I was pretty disheartened when I saw the 1990 miniseries that was broadcast, I think, originally on ABC. Mm-hmm. Tim Curry, wonderful. The the cast, both the kids and the adults, terrific. You know, absolutely great. John Ritter, one of my favorite actors ever, period. And this appeared in our Reboots episode. You talked about how much yep. you liked this original cast versus... The later cast, yes, yeah. Yeah, the new franchise, yeah. you. That's absolutely right, yeah. You've talked about this before, because you're right. It's, it's a fantastic cast. But... Because it was made for TV and because they gave it to Tommy Lee Wallace, right? Mm. I, I mean, he's fine. Basically, he's just sort of a coattail hanger to John Carpenter. I mean, right. he re- directed Halloween 3. He directed Vampires 2. And, you know, he was second unit on a bunch of Carpenter's movies. To his benefit, I will say, to his credit, he wrote Amityville 2. So that's yeah. kind of neat. Yeah. We kind of knew it was on TV and it was him directing it. He did okay. Sure. You know, the movie's not bad. But what's really cool is the making of the movie. Yeah. And the sort of idea of translating this in the people that were involved, like Lawrence D. Cohen, and these independent filmmakers. I mean, we're talking like pretty low budget. I think that they did like a GoFundMe type thing with this uh, Indiegogo. Before that was a thing. (laughs) And they only got like $40,000 to do this documentary back in 2021. They just released it. These guys, John Campopianon and Chris Griffiths, They're the makers of several other low-budget docs, including this really good one called You're So Cool, Brewster, The Story of Fright Night. Oh, cool. These guys are pretty cool. But they had over 30 people that they interviewed that were part of the production of the original miniseries. Lots of great stills, lots of archival footage, cool editing. Tim Curry's in there, which is kind of wonderful, even though he clearly has declined over the past several years. It's nice to see him talking about what is, you know, an overused word is iconic, but his version of Pennywise, I would say, possibly qualifies as iconic. Absolutely, yeah. I think that watching the making of It is as compelling as loving the story of It. I would recommend it to folks who who are fans. Just like you backed up my pick with Candyman, as luck would have it, and we didn't talk about this before, I watched this documentary maybe two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Cool. You're absolutely right. It is, <laughs> for somebody who loves any part of that world, any part of that story, I loved it. You were right. There was so much there. Yeah. The documentary was made with a lot of love, and you could see that. And it was really great getting to hear from that cast. I couldn't second that motion any harder. It's a great <laughs> little doc. Mike, I want to thank you very much for a really fun Halloween season. I think that this was a great idea for us to do three horror films for the season. And we've talked about now 33 horror films, probably referencing even more than that. That's a <laughs> hell of a lot of horror. That's more than one a day. So if somebody wanted to do the the film jitsu challenge, oh boy, October challenge, they could watch one of each one of these movies. It would be an absolute nightmare of a challenge. I mean, it's just awful. It sounds like they could just watch <laughs> the Amityville movies for the that's month. That's a good point. Yeah, that's actually true. That's a disgusting challenge. Nobody do that. <laughs> but there are some good ones in there. So <laughs> it was a great time. And I really appreciate that was a great idea of yours. We're going to return ourselves to our regularly scheduled programming next week. And I'm not sure which film that'll be but it'll be something and I'm sure it'll be awful. (laughs) (laughs) I love this time of year and 
I can't wait to do this again next year. Maybe our listeners have some ideas for a way that we could continue to mix it up and make these episodes a little bit different than what we usually do. Hit us up on filmjitsu.net. Hit us up on Twitter at filmjitsu. Write to Jay at filmjitsu.net or Mike at filmjitsu.net. We all want to get together and share our love for these crazy, shitty movies. We want to hear that stuff from you. We have been your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. Keep your blood on the inside. Forrest Gump 2, Texas, Texas Blood, Blood Money. Money, yes! There you go. <laughs> it's right there.